friends to the tomb of ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. I am the tomb's proprietor, Headstone P. Gravely, and here I are two captive hosts, Shrey Lawson and James Hickson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast where we look at Marvel horror comics starting from the early 1970s to today. I am one of your humble, humble hosts, James Hickson. And I'm Trey Lawson. And Trey, how you been? Good. Um, we've got uh, some some interesting stuff going on in... The Marvel Universe at large. Um, mostly things that it will be a very long time before we get to cover in detail. Um, but still wor- worth noting that they are happening right now as we speak. Yeah. For instance, we are. they just announced a new Ghost Rider series. Yeah. And uh, not just any Ghost Rider, because these days you gotta be specific. There's a bunch of Spirits of Vengeance out there. Um, but this new Ghost Rider book... Um, is going to feature uh, the original two spirits of vengeance of the 80s and 90s, Johnny Blaze and his brother Danny Ketch. Wait, they're brothers? Oops, spoilers. Oh, man. Okay, so, like, is the Ghost Panther another brother? I don't think so. Okay, but Cosmic Ghost Rider is another brother, right? Well, Cosmic Ghost Rider is actually a possible future version of the punisher frank castle yep comics yep and then of course there's also the robbie reyes version of ghost rider who drives a muscle car instead of a uh, motorcycle um and he uh in addition to uh getting his own tv series soon um is also currently an avenger Okay, so hold on. So, Johnny Blaze... Yes? ...was Nicolas Cage. Yes. Twice. Uh, okay. Were they the same Johnny Blaze? Pretty much. I mean, there, there's no, like, clear continuity, I don't think, from one Ghost Rider movie to the other, but, but he plays Johnny Blaze in both. Okay. And Robbie Reyes, whose actor, I apologize if he's listening to the show, uh, was on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Yes. And... He is now getting his own TV show on Hulu. Yes. So, Danny Ketch, the ghostwriter of our youth. Yes. The one who is perhaps the most popular of all, is the only one who has not gotten a mainstream media incarnation. Not quite. Okay. Um, So, um, if you remember the boom of Marvel animated TV shows of the 90s. I, I very fondly. Um, so, Danny Ketch made his first TV appearance on the 90s X-Men cartoon um, as, like, a weird flashback memory that Gambit has. Okay, and then there's the one where he defeats Galactus. Right, he appears in the Fantastic Four Win Calls Galactus adaptation, um, where he teams up with the Fantastic Four and Thor um, and, and tries to use his penance stare on Galactus. And that's actually, that's part of how you know it's Danny Ketch, is he uses the penance stare. 
that originally was a Danny Ketch thing. Okay, and now it's an all Ghost Riders thing. Um, pretty much, yeah. Um, he also briefly appeared on the animated Incredible Hulk show of the 90s. Okay. Uh, where he tried to come after the Hulk before realizing that the Hulk was actually innocent. Okay. Um, and, just to cover all our bases, in that second Ghost Rider movie, Ghost Rider Spirit of Vengeance, that Nicolas Cage was in. Okay. Um, Danny Ketch appears as a child. Um, he's actually the child that the devil worshippers are trying to use as an earthly vessel for Satan. Uh, and he appears in Marvels in a similar way because he's the little kid that the photographer dude is talking to at the end of the book saying, like, this is what we need. More normal kids like you. What's your name, kid? Danny Ketch. <laughs> And they're like, aw, Kurt Busiek, that was mean. Yep, yep. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, so lots of Ghost Rider news. Actually, uh, in addition to the Ghost Rider solo book and uh, Robbie Reyes being an Avenger, um, Danny Ketch is also currently appearing in uh, the solo Punisher comic uh, because uh, the Punisher has put together a team of heroes um, featuring... Danny Ketch, uh, Natasha Romanoff, the Black Widow, uh, Dwayne Taylor, the current Night Thrasher, Rachel Cole, um, who was uh, briefly sort of Frank's protege. She was sort of Punisher 2.0. Okay, the the one with the helmet. Right, right. She had sort of the, the, like, armored look with the skull helmet and all that. I don't know that she's wearing that right now, but that was her look for a while. Uh, And, most importantly... Um, a key member of any team, Mark Spector, the Moon Knight. Oh, God damn it! <laughs> you, you had to know it was coming. Who apparently is... Uh, okay, we talked about this last time. He is getting his own... Um, uh, well, no, we talked about it two episodes ago, sorry. He's getting his own uh, Disney Plus series. Yeah, um, it's and I'm excited. Uh, I don't know what specific storylines they're going to adapt. The, the logo is the logo from the uh, Warren Ellis run, which is exciting. Um, so hopefully they'll be drawing some inspiration from that. Uh, and that's the run that introduced that he has more than one costume. He has his, like, traditional Moon Knight persona, where he has the cape and the hood and all that. But he also has um, a different superheroic persona that he that just calls himself Mr. Knight, where he wears a, an all-white three-piece suit with a mask with a uh, crescent moon on the forehead. Okay. Um, and he has, like, a souped-up uh, car that takes him to crime scenes and stuff. So Yeah, it's, it's very pulp adventure. It is, it is. Um, that's also the run where he puts on um, a special suit of armor so that he can punch ghosts. Okay. So, wait. Because this is Disney Plus, does that mean at most it's going to be like a PG thirteen Moon Knight? Probably. Um, my understanding is that uh, they are reserving Disney Plus for like family and teen friendly content, and that the the more grown up stuff will will go to places like Hulu, which they also own. But then, how is he going to get his fucking money from Dracula? <laughs> I still don't know where that meme came from, but I love that it exists. I, I swear we need to know where that came from. Um, also, the follow-up meme where he is contacting the Avengers because Dracula told him he was an Avenger. 
I know. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. I, uh, I I saw someone suggest the other day uh, Shia LaBeouf as uh, Mark Spector. And, and you know, it, it kind of works for me. That, that isn't the worst thing ever, no. Like, I can see that. Like, he... For one thing, he is a much more interesting actor than he gets credit for. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I could see him really, like, digging into the the weird, like, personality shifts that the character has. Yeah. You know, just just do it. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, we, we, we may have reached a point in the evening where we communicate strictly through memes. This this often happens when we are uh, planning uh, recording sessions. Almost inevitably. Yeah. So speaking of streaming television, Netflix said no to Elvira. They did, they did. Um, which on the one hand is disappointing because they're not the only ones who said no to Elvira. Apparently, she is having trouble launching uh, a revival series. Yeah, because she first went to Netflix. Yep. Uh, basically, try, um, proposing a uh, modern incarnation of Midnight Macabre, the show she hosted in in the eighties and has ver- had various revivals through the mm. years. I, I guess the most recent to actually make it to some sort of of broadcast is the Thirteen Nights of Elvira. Right, which is now on. Um, Amazon Prime. Yes. But is, in fact, so bad that you cannot watch it. Like, the movies selected for that series are so bad, I could not watch it. One of them being Ginger Dead Man. Oh, the the Busey movie? The Busey movie. You know, there's a whole series of those. Oh, God, why? Because Busey kept saying yes. I mean, how did they get money the second time around? I, th- I thought you could only sell that crappy car once. I mean, I'm pretty sure that those are, are a Full Moon production, which uh, I don't know how familiar you are with Full Moon productions, but uh, Not at all. Uh, the Puppet Master series are Full Moon productions. Okay. Um, the uh, You ever seen Dr. Mordred? No. Oh, we need to watch Dr. Mordred sometime. Because you know what Dr. Mordred is? What? Full Moon thought they had the rights to Dr. Strange, and so they developed a script. And then they did not have the rights to Dr. Strange, but they had developed a script. So they made a Dr. Strange movie but changed the name of the character. <laughs> and, it's, and it stars Jeffrey Combs. Okay, we'll watch this. It is amazingly weird. So, yes. And this goes to all of you out there. Dr. Mordred is a weird movie, but it's fun. It, it's it's not good, but it's fun. That's basically the spectrum that Full Moon Productions fall on is it ranges from not good but fun to, oh my god, this is awful and unwatchable. That That's basically the spectrum. All right. So we're adding that to the list of movies we're going to end up doing commentaries for. I, I think that's fair. I mean, it, it is, for all intents and purposes, it is a better Doctor Strange in movie fact, honest, than the 70s TV movie. In, in fact, if um, enough of you want to subscribe to the um, Cinepunks Patreon, we might even do 
uh, host skits that fall between parts of the movie. Yeah, yeah, and, we, and we can do that. And maybe we'll give you time codes that, hey, stop here and watch this segment. Okay, now resume the movie. Okay, stop here and watch this segment. Exactly. Um, and, uh, yeah, so if you're interested in stuff like that or other special content, go to Cinepunks.com, look for the Patreon link, and uh, and subscribe. Right. Um, Liam will thank you. Absolutely. Um, but, but, yeah, uh, Ginger Dead Man, bad stuff. Real bad. Um, really, really bad. I could not finish it. And, and, yeah, and that's sort of par for the course for a lot of those most recent Elvira episodes. And it's not her fault. Those are probably what they could get the rights to. Yeah, almost certainly. In fact, I think that those Elvira, 13 Nights Elvira, was actually produced by Full Moon. That makes sense. That makes sense. Cause, because they have their own Amazon channel. So that makes sense. Ah, uh, okay. That explains why they're free to watch. Yep, yep. Um, so she probably had access to certain films in their back catalog. And like I said, you're not going to get a good movie that way. You might get something that's fun, but it's not going to be good. Uh, case in point, uh, Rift Tracks, not that long ago, did one of the Puppet Master movies, uh, Mm -hmm. Retro Puppet Master, um, which I kid you not, stars Greg Sestero of The Room, doing a bad french accent oh dear yep that doesn't sound like a good thing so okay but 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 we were talking about elvira so her most recent run wasn't all that great not really her fault though the host segments are fine but the movies are bad uh yeah but just that 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 it seems like she's having trouble finding interest whether it's because of the quality of that last series or not i don't know yeah and they're not even, like, MST3K levels of bad. They are worse. They, yeah. they Like, there's a level of... there MST3K films, people, they had good intentions. Yep, yep. Um, Ginger Dead Man is just made to capitalize off the train wreck that is Gary Busey. Yeah. And that's that's honestly my problem with a lot of the, especially post-1998 Full Moon stuff, is that it often feels pretty cynical. Yeah. And, but, we did actually, I think, talk about how this might actually be a good thing for MST3K. Yeah, I mean, if Netflix's reasoning is we already have one sort of genre movie show with host segments um like maybe that's a sign that they're looking to renew i certainly hope so because i have been consistently impressed with the quality of the revived mst3k yeah like i think we've said before in the show the latest season is perhaps one of the most solid seasons in the show's history and something that's um gives similar kind of gets credence to that is the fact that another network she went to was shutter and they said no. Yeah, which, again, they currently have a show where a host breaks into the movie to talk about stuff. I mean, and, and as much as I love Elvira, I would not want to take away Joe Bob's spot. No, not at all. And, you know, this doesn't mean that things have to be over for Elvira. Of this, course not. Like, 
there's still Hulu, where yep. I think, and, you know, I joke that, you know, oh, time for Elvira to get bought by Amazon Prime. Sorry, <laughs> not, but time for Elvira to get bought by Disney+. Plus. But honestly, she could have a show on Hulu. Disney could fund Elvira. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just, well, and honestly, even if it became a seasonal thing, like, you know, um, what is it? The uh, used-to-be ABC family. They changed the name of the network. Freeform. Uh, Freeform. Like, they always do their, like, 31 nights of Halloween or whatever. Like, Disney could totally lean into that and do, like, an Elvira series for streaming that goes along with the 31 nights of Halloween. Exactly. And even if, like, they can't... Even Hulu, there still is Amazon Prime, who has a ton of terrible horror films that they have licensed. Exactly. Yeah, or at least... Just, just... Go to the genre section and tap horror, and or even sci-fi. Like both of those categories, there's all there's some good stuff in there, but you gotta dig through a lot of garbage. Yeah, yeah. Although I did see a rather good um, mummy film uh, with Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee in it uh, called Horror Express. Oh, okay. I- I've heard of that one. It, it it it's it's fine. Yeah. It's not quite to the level of a hammer horror film mm-hmm. but it's perfectly serviceable okay i might add that to my list then yeah they're, they've got a few sec versions of it including one that has a horror host called i think dr freak uh yep yep um dr freak's dr freak host horror express so it might not be the best version of it like the best like video quality Sure. But it it, it it does the job. Oh, it's got Telly Savalas in it, too. Yep, yep. Um, and, 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 of course, Elvira um, is not totally without an outlet right now. Um, she Her her persona, her character, um, has been licensed to Dynamite for a while now. Um, and they've had a, a solo Elvira comic series going for, I think, about a year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. Yeah. And so, yeah. Although, it, it just occurred to me that an Elvira team-up book would be amazing. Yes. Yes. Like, Elvira... I'm, for some reason in my head, I'm thinking um, the new Scooby-Doo movies, but with Elvira instead of Scooby. Yeah. Although, okay, speaking of Elvira, she is in the most recent Scooby animated film. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She's in Scooby-Doo... Uh, return to zombie island right because it's revealed that her show is shaggy and scooby's favorite tv show that makes sense i could see that yep um we we'll try not to tell vincent van Gogh because that's a different continuity <laughs> yep folks scooby-doo has different continuities oh yeah yep we're not quite on the level of the marvel multiverse but but we're getting there yeah although i think we all agree that mystery incorporated was the best that was a really good one. Was that the one that had, like, its own version of Cenobites at one point? Like, the Hellraiser demons? I think, perhaps. It had Vincent Van Gogh as a TV horror host. Nice. Nice. Uh, played by LeBlanc. Mm. What? I can't remember. Maurice LeBlanc. LaMarche? LaMarche. Shit. Maurice the, LaMarche. The Brain, right? Yeah, The Brain. Like, like from Pinky and the Brain? He's not... He is Matt. He is not Matt LeBlanc's more successful brother. <laughs> right, right. 
but uh but yeah um so although he would make a better host on top top gear yes yes um so not great news for elvira um maybe hopefully fingers crossed good news for uh jonah and joel yep um certainly good and news probably for great news joe for bob, joe bob and darcy because they they already know they've been renewed yeah and shutter is all over them right now yeah and did you see shutter teasing some sort of special treat for halloween no um oh, because shut because shutter posted that and then it was either joe bob or darcy who tweeted it saying i wonder what that could be oh it's probably darcy <laughs> Anyway, guys, we know some of you hate when we go off on tangents like this, so let's go ahead and tell you about the beautiful, lovely comics we are talking about this evening on Tomb of Ideas. We are thrilled to bring to you Dracula Lives number three, coming back to the black and white magazine format that you guys love so much, and concluding a cliffhanger from last month, Amazing Spider-Man 125, concluding the first appearance of Man-Wolf. And so that means we've got the one Spider-Man story, but three different Dracula stories coming up, um, yep. in addition to maybe some discussion of some of the, the material in between. Um, yep. And uh, I think this maybe is a good place to take a break and then come back with some of that good comics content that the people are here for. That's right. We'll be right back after these messages. If you take two old punk rockers who are past their prime, put them in front of a movie screen and give them a podcast, what do you get? Cinema punks. Cinepunks. It's the mixtape of movies. There's this weird guy on Channel 9 this fall, and I guarantee he'll give you nightmares. His name is Freddy something or other, but immediately following Freddy, I'm back. Now, if I'm Mistress of the Dark and Freddy's going to give you nightmares, I would think twice before falling asleep Saturday night. Remember, don't miss a nightmare on Elm Street, Freddy's Nightmare, and me, Elvira, Saturdays beginning at 10 p.m., nowhere else but Channel 9. Elvira's Movie Macabre, tonight at 11. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. Our first story for today is from Dracula Lives number three. Cover date is October 1973, and the title is Lord of Death, Lord of Hell. Uh, written by Marv Wolfman. Pencils by John Bashima. Inker is Sid Shores, and the letterer is John Costanza. Editors are, deep breath, Roy Thomas, Jerry Conway, Murray Friedman, Tony Isabella, Don McGregor, and Marv Wolfman. On a cold night, a very nude Dracula stands at the grave of his beloved Maria and vows to take vengeance on humanity because of the events recounted in the previous issue. Just then, a swarm of bats circle him and reveal themselves to be vampires sent to take Dracula to their leader. He is very quickly beaten, and when he regains consciousness, is brought before Nimrod I, King of the Vampires. 
Dracula, ever resistant to authority, refuses to bow to Nimrod, and instead pledges to Nimrod's death. His challenge results in a tournament of stakes scheduled for the next day. That night, Dracula is approached by Layla, one of Nimrod's women. She attempts to seduce him, but he rejects her advances. Instead, Dracula goes flying in bat form and checks on his son, adopted by a Romani camp. He then finds human victims on whom to feed, before returning to his coffin before dawn. The next evening, Dracula and Nimrod duel with wooden stakes. At first, Dracula's inexperience as a vampire gives Nimrod the upper hand. In a moment of distraction, Layla attempts to attack Dracula from behind, but is very quickly dispatched. In the fight, Dracula loses his stake, but as Nimrod rushes him, Dracula uses the king's size and speed against him, sending him chest first into the discarded stake. And thus, scattering Nimrod's ashes to the wind, Dracula declares himself the new Lord of the Undead. Dracula! 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 <laughs> so, um, why is Dracula naked at the beginning? Um, because Buscema's giving the fans what they want. I guess. It is just an odd choice. He he looks very feral there. He does. He does. It, it, it it's, it's not Gene Colan's kind of smooth, come by way of Vincent Price, Christopher Lee Dracula. Yeah, yeah. Um, he he is definitely a kind of feral person, which I kind of like. Yeah, no, especially some of these close-ups. He's got this really great snarling expression. Yeah. Um, and, and you can sort of see some of that is his inexperience as a vampire. Some of it is that he is still so close to his humanity that the rage of his betrayal is still there. Yeah, it, 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 and you kind of see this transition in him from I'm going to be this really bestial creature to where he meets the other vampires and it's like, oh, no, I'm not going to throw him with these guys. Yeah, like, I, I can still, do better. Yes, I am still Dracula. Right. Uh, uh, also, I just can't help but think that uh, sort of in the middle especially, um, where he's got sort of the, the button-down shirt but open down to the uh, down his chest, like, it's a very sort of, uh, like, romance novel version of Dracula, <laughs> for want of a better description. I, I, I suppose. I suppose that was a trope by this point. Like uh, it's sort of Dracula by way of Fabio. Yeah, yeah. Which, there's a portrayal of Dracula later in this book, which I just adore, which we'll get to in a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but, what do we think of Layla? Um, the duel is fun. I like that. Yeah, the duel is fun. Who do, who who is Layla reminding us of? Um. Because I kind of got a Carolyn Monroe thing off of her. Yeah, yeah, I mean, definitely in the mode of, um, like, the later Hammer vampire movies. Okay. Um, like, not so much the Dracula movies, but getting into, um, what's called the Kernstein cycle. Um, so, like, uh, the Vampire Lovers, Twins of Evil, um, even, uh, Captain Kronos fits into that series. But, but, like, that era of, uh, sort of vampiric femme fatale characters... Oh, trust me, we will be talking about Captain Kronos later in this episode. 
it, 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 it demands to be talked about. It's a fun one. Um, but but that's, like, I, I keep thinking of that era of, like, mid to late 70s Hammer, you know? Okay. Where they, where they were allowed to be a little more explicit with the sexuality. Yeah. And they definitely are more explicit here of sexuality than they would be in a, than, like, a book of, like, Tomb of Dracula. Yeah, because uh, cause Dracula's not the only one who gets naked in this story. Nope. Layla um, tries to seduce him the night after his wife is brutally murdered. So that's not great. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't really read the room there. Yeah. But he's tempted. He is tempted. For, yeah, for like a minute. Yeah. Uh, and, and then he, he uh, immediately has like a vision of of his wife or whatever yeah so that um didn't work out for him yeah well it's sort it of telling her that, rather right well it's sort of telling that that scene ends and his his first impulse is to check on his child yeah it, 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 it kind of humanizes him yeah like i say this is dracula still very close to his humanity which which is interesting it's yeah and it's interesting because of course we're getting the evil bastard dracula in tomb of dracula but we're getting the more human dracula in dracula lives right right and it's sort of it's going to be interesting when those two things maybe start to converge true i think that's going to be like around the time that um that well dracula lives gets canceled fair yes yes that that is true um the, the experiment with the magazine format doesn't last terribly long. No. It, it it goes away after a while, and I think some of these ideas kind of get, uh, uh, for lack of a better word, absorbed yeah. into the comics. Yeah. Um, so I, I do, I think the art on this one is very appropriate to the content. Um, it, it's got this very almost sort of sword and sandals feel uh like a conan comic which which is fitting for the time period and uh and for the fight scene at the end i think yeah although uh, if we're mm-hmm. well and, and just that the that fight scene in particular the the whole like two shirtless guys fighting with sharp objects uh i can't help but think of uh batman versus Rachel ghoul yeah that's an easy connection to make i think although if we're going to talk about Conan, and, and we really should talk about the next story. That's true. Um, although, but before we get to that, um, there there is, for the first time, I think, a letters page in Dracula Lives um, called, fittingly enough, Dracula Reads. <laughs> I love um, the illustration there. He's looking, at, he's looking at that letter like, the fuck is wrong with these people? <laughs> yep. Which is probably, admittedly, how the editors okay, looked at these letters as well. Um, a couple things that stand out. A couple things that stand out to me here is uh, one of the letters from Robert Lowry um, really doesn't like the use of the quote-unquote hosts in between stories, like the photographs with the silly captions. No, and I think it's worth noting that they have gotten rid of that by this point. Yeah, yeah, and and they they say that uh, they're still using the photos, but they're no longer putting the silly captions. Yeah, be- uh, for economic reasons. Right. Uh, 
And then also, in the same uh, letter, uh, Robert Lowry uh, asks about an adaptation of the original Bram Stoker novel, um, preferably written by uh, Conway or Thomas, and maybe drawn by Colin. Um, And in their reply, they mention that, in fact, uh, an adaptation of the original novel will begin in the magazine starting next issue, written by editor Roy Thomas, with art by John Bashima. Oh, cool. Um, which I actually have the uh, collected volume of that one, because several years ago, uh, it was finished and fully colored um, and, and put into print. So I, I have a hardcover of that one. Oh, wow. Uh, signed by Roy himself. Hey, okay. <laughs> there you go. Not to name drop or anything. I wonder how ever did you meet him. Yeah, no, not, not that you would ever do that. Uh, um, but yeah, it was a it was a fun issue. I thought. Yeah, yeah, it's a good story. It, it, I like that it's maintaining that they maintain the continuity of the previous sort of origin of the character. So we're we're sort of building this history of Dracula in the Marvel universe. Yeah, and I I think that I think it's nice that they are building. Um, basically fleshing Dracula out as a character rather than just the antagonist of Bram Stoker's novel. Because that's really all we had of Dracula besides some kind of vague historical name-dropping for Vlad Tepes. Yeah, and and, and that's something that initially we had questions about in Tomb of Dracula. You know, it's like, so the events of the novel more or less happened, and now we're in the 70s, and it's not really clear what happened in between, or even before. And so here, we're getting the before. And then in some of the other stories that are showing up in Dracula Lives, we're getting the in-between. Yeah, which I'm liking it. It may not be um, the most faithful version sure. of Dracula ever. Sure. But I'm definitely enjoying it. So I, I, I'm interested in seeing where it goes from here. And how it's all going to tie in. Because we are starting to get unexpected references in Tomb of Dracula. So yeah. these stories that we're seeing here are definitely canon. Yeah, yeah. And, and I also, I, I happen to think, even though we know historically that this magazine didn't last terribly long, I actually think the anthology format is perfect for this kind of character work. Because you can get little snapshots of moments in time that maybe don't deserve a whole issue. But you can tell a, a quick story over a few pages yes um but i I think that sort of covers at least everything that i had to say about this first story yeah i I think it it's not my favorite story of the issue but it's solid yeah i do really like the image near the end of uh dracula like throwing the ashes of nimrod yeah and the vampire's going the other vampires are going, Dracula, Dracula, because apparently leadership of the vampires goes a lot like uh, pro wrestling. That's that's fair. I mean, I, I also just like the idea of the tournament of stakes as this uh, like ritualized way of determining leadership. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, I, I think that does it for that first story, um, but. This being one of the magazines, we've got two more coming up. Um, so, 
um, having wrapped up that story, um, we can move on to um, the next original story in Dracula Lives number three, and that is Castle of the Undead. This story is written by Roy Thomas, penciled by Alan Weiss, and the inkers are the Krusty Bunkers. On the night of a full moon in a Transylvanian wood, Solomon Kane fights a pack of wolves with his silver-alloyed sword. Just as the wolves are about to devour him, Dracula appears and calls them off. Dracula takes Kane to his castle to recover, where Kane reveals his mission to investigate the disappearance of Rosella Carson, the daughter of a friend who vanished in the area. Dracula suggests that bandits are a problem in the Transylvanian countryside, to which Kane agrees, recounting his own encounter with such ne'er-do-wells. Despite his skill, those attackers got better of Kane, but left without robbing him because of the approaching full moon. In Dracula's castle, the Count leaves Kane alone and cautions him not to leave his rooms before sunrise. Kane tries to sleep, but is awakened before dawn by a strange noise. In the moonlight, he sees the figure of a beautiful woman who tries to seduce him. Kane pushes her away, then recognizes her as Rosella Carson, transformed into a vampire. She attacks, throwing Kane across the room. He grabs his nearby walking stick, which she promptly breaks. Kane then uses the broken stick as a stake and dispatches the newborn vampire for good. An enraged Kane then confronts Dracula, and the two duel with swords. Kane wins the duel and plunges his sword into Dracula's heart, but the steel has no effect on the vampire, who may only be killed by silver or a wooden stake. Kane then throws a handful of silver coins at the count, which pin him to the floor. Kane raises an axe to decapitate the vampire, but at the last moment, Dracula reminds Kane that he is owed a debt for saving Kane's life. Thus, Solomon Kane spares the vampire and angrily departs Castle Dracula. This one was a lot of fun. This was probably my favorite story of of the magazine. Like not not just this issue but of all the magazine we've read so far probably so like it's up there for sure um yeah for one thing it's solomon kane which is a robert howard character and roy thomas loves him some robert howard and you can tell yes he does um yes he does but also thomas gets the character of dracula in a way that some of the other writers don't and true and I think it's particularly effective in this story that Dracula outsmarts Kane. It's not that he outfights him, it's that he outsmarts him. Yes. Like, there is no reason that Solomon Kane should not have been able to defeat Dracula. Right. Which he almost does. But Dracula uses Solomon Kane's own code of honor against him. Right, right. Which is kind of perfect for both characters. It is. It is. It fits the sort of, like, Puritan origin of the Solomon Kane character. And it also fits... It also fits the way that Dracula relishes corrupting people like that. Yes. Uh, it's... It's... It's really good. <laughs> yeah. Like... Dracula's Dracula's his smugness in that whole fight scene is just great. 
It, it really is. And God, I love Dracula's outfit here. Oh, like the fencing outfit? The fencing outfit, the outfit he's wearing before the fencing outfit, when he, he first meets Kane, he's got that ridiculous collar. Right, well, because like, that's the thing, is it, I mean, it's, it is the period. Like, what's cool about this anthology is that we're jumping around in time, and so now we have, like, a totally different time period than the Dracula we saw a minute ago. Yes. But, guys, if you've not seen it, uh, you need to find this comic and you need to read it because there's a scene where dracula's wearing this huge collar that's like feathered almost yep and man you know i love a big collar this is yeah this is like uh mr sinister would get inspiration from this collar years later yep yep it's great (laughs) um just little bit of trivia here had you ever heard of the Krusty Bunkers? No. The Inkers? So, no. So, the Krusty Bunkers are, a, it's a pseudonym for a collective of comic book inkers working in Adams and Dick Giordano's Continuity Studios. Okay. Um, so, sometimes they were credited as the Goon Squad, sometimes under a single name, like Chuck Bunker. Um, but uh, but it, w- it was like, basically especially if they were under deadline, um, the pages would just get passed from person to person and everyone would ink a little bit of it. <laughs> um, I love that. And, like, oh. uh, just if you look up the list of members of the Krusty Bunkers over the year, it is, like, a who's who of, like, important names in comics. Um, like, uh, of course, Neil Adams and, and Dick Giordano, but uh, also uh, Rich Buckler, Howard Chaikin... Dave Cockrum, Dennis Cohen, uh, Klaus Jensen, Steve Englehart, uh, Jim Starlin, like, uh, everybody who's everybody. It kind of reminds me, have you ever read the book The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay? I have it. I have been meaning to read it for a very long time. There's a scene where they have to put together a comic book in a single weekend. And... The pages are just getting passed around piecemeal so people could work on them. And, like, there are people inking in the bathtub <laughs> of this, like, studio apartment. Just everybody trying to get this book out before Monday. It's really... It's a fantastic scene of book, and that reminds me very much of that. Yeah, well, and apparently the way it worked was uh, usually the most experienced artists, usually Adams or Giordano, would ink the faces and the main figures... And then it would just get passed around from person to person, filling in the rest. Um, that makes sense. And, and, I could see some of these faces being Neil Adams' faces. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and there's a quote from Larry Hama where he said, quote, If a job was incredibly late, then the Krusty Bunkers would gather together half a dozen to a dozen inkers and turn out a whole book in a day or two, all under the supervision of Neil. It was a whirl. Guys would be passing pages back and forth. Guys would be standing over boards, filling in blacks upside down while someone was rendering a face at the bottom of a page. Wow. <laughs> so, oh, I love as it. far as we know, that's the sort of process that this story went through. Nice. That is beautiful. Anyway, I just I so, figured I'd throw that out there because when I was reading the credits for this book, the name Krusty Bunkers just seemed really odd and it seemed like there was a story there and i was right 
I'm so glad you looked that up. I am so glad you found it out. See, guys, this is why I have Trey on the podcast. Not just because we were locked in this tomb together, <laughs> but because he <laughs> he goes out and finds the information for us. It's it's he's honestly the best co-host in podcasting, barring all others. Okay, um, so some podcasts have a crack research team. I've got Google and Wikipedia, and I've got crack. <laughs> Oh, but okay. So I th- I mentioned I would mention this later, and so I'm mentioning it. Uh, <laughs> this reminded me so much of Captain Cronus Vampire Hunter, which I watched a few nights before reading this. Captain Cronus is very much in the Solomon Kane mode. Exactly. This is uh, except a little bit less Puritan. Right. Right. He is still a swashbuckling, uh, long-haired, probably bare-chested vampire hunter type person um but he's a bit more laid back and smokes weed right right sorry chinese herbs Eh, six one half dozen the other Uh, like this is exactly what i needed because i was so pissed off there was not a sequel to captain Cronus because like right after i watched it i'm like i want more of this yeah which my understanding my understanding is that movie started as a pitch for a tv show that makes sense and then they were like, no, we could do it as a series of films. Right, right. And then nothing happened with it. Yeah, and, and technically it is linked to a bigger series of films because the vampires are the Karnsteins. Okay. And, and so the, the there's a whole cycle of Hammer vampire movies featuring the Karnstein clan of vampires, which is sort of a, a it's a distinct offshoot of vampirism that's separate from Dracula. Okay. Um, and uh, that the Karnsteins actually show up in Anno Dracula as one of the vampire clans. Nice. Um, but uh, but yeah, so it's loosely connected to some other Hammer movies, but none of those others have the sort of swashbuckling style of Captain Kronos. Because that was super enjoyable. Yeah. Like, no, the if, scene... If you're, if you're looking for something in the Hammer style that's not incredibly scary or spooky but is more of, like, a, an adventure kind of movie, Captain Kronos is fun. It is. Like, there's a scene in there where they're trying to figure out how to kill this type of vampire. And I don't want to spoil the movie for anybody, because really, you should go out and watch it, and <clears throat> it's on YouTube. Um, but <laughs> um, but also, um, if you happen to dig up a copy of uh, Dracula Lives Number 3, and you read the Solomon Kane story, and you like that vibe... It's it's in that ballpark. Yeah. Has there been a good Solomon Kane movie? There is one called Solomon Kane, and it's pretty good. Um, last I checked, it was on Netflix. Oh. Okay. Adding that to my 31 Days of Horror list. <clears throat> it came out in 2009 um, and stars James Purefoy as Solomon Kane. Yep, I found it. Okay, yep. Oh, it also recommends Season of the Witch. I could see that. In the ballpark. Yeah. But uh, James Purefoy, who played uh, Edward Black Prince of Wales in A Knight's Tale. Um, he's uh, Kantos Khan in John Carter. Okay. Um, and, and famously um, played the title role in V for Vendetta for the first six weeks of filming before being replaced by Hugo Weaving. Wow, that's got to suck for him. Yeah, well, apparently the his voice work wasn't working out, and uh, so you can it, they used the scenes he shot, but had Hugo Weaving redub them, and then 
And then Hugo Weaving played the character for the rest of the shoot. Which is actually fairly similar to what happens in Captain Kronos. Yeah, yeah. Because the main actor was a German actor. A German actor by the name of Horst Janssen. Yep. And he did the film... And in post-production, they're like, uh, we're going to dub him over with Julian Holloway. Yep. Which may be another reason that nothing happened as far as sequels goes. Because apparently his German accent was deemed too thick, so Julian Holloway came in and redubbed him. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and just uh, to, to tie it back into comics, um, there actually are some adaptations of Captain Kronos. Yes, there is a comic series. Though there were there were two, so okay. Hammer had its own comic book in the seventies called The House of Hammer, and issues one through three were the adaptation of Captain Kronos. Okay. Um, then, more recently, in two thousand seventeen, um, Titan Comics adapted Captain Kronos in a four issue miniseries. Okay. But also, in two thousand eleven. Um, there was a novelization just called Kronos. Okay. Were these adaptations or continuations? I do not know. Um, I haven't been able to figure that out. I'm guessing the House of Hammer one was probably an adaptation. Um, okay. The Titan comics, I'm not sure. Um, the novel is described as a novelization of the film, even though it wasn't published until 2011. Interesting. Uh, but it was written by Guy Adams who has produced several of the Doctor Who Big Finish productions. Nice. Because really, there's no reason they could not do Captain Cronus films today. Yeah. I mean, it's I mean, it's basically a little bit Solomon Kane and a little bit Van Helsing. Heck, the movie Van Helsing with Hugh Jackman is more a Captain Cronus movie than it is a Van Helsing movie. True. I mean, I've not watched that film, but Peter Cushing the man is not. Right, well, I mean, and he's got, like, the slouch hat and, like, all the specialized monster hunting gear. Like, he is more in the swashbuckling mode than you would expect a Van Helsing to be. Funnily enough, somebody took all of those as inspiration and created a RPG system for Savage Worlds called Rippers, which is actually a lot of fun. Nice. It's, it's, it's so much fun. Rippers, and I apologize to my comics fans, let me go to my... Let me talk to my um, dice-rolling homies out there. Um, <laughs> is a great little setting for Savage Worlds. My, my Perhaps my favorite um, RPG playing system. Where you play vampire hunters in Victorian England. Um, but you realize that most men cannot fight monsters. Right. So what you do is when you kill the monsters, you take a little bit home with you. And you have talented surgeons implant them into you. Oh, this so sounds that like a you, recipe for disaster. Yes! You, you you receive a drop in what is called a reason score whenever you do this. <laughs> and if your reason score drops low enough, you can go insane and become an NPC villain in the campaign. Interesting. <laughs> it, it really is. I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to running it at some point. You know, when I'm not stuck in a tomb. Um question um getting back to uh the uh, dracula versus solomon kane story um 
mm-hmm. the bandits that attack that attack uh, Solomon Kane. Are we to assume that is the band of Romani that uh, do Dracula's bidding? Oh no, no, they're like Turks or something. Okay, because they're I think the reference is like Turks or something. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, I, I just for some reason in my head I was thinking that might be a connection to, um, mm-hmm. uh, in in the novel that that Dracula has that like band of of like Romani servants that sort of live outside the castle grounds. I, that would make sense, but hold you're on. right. Look, looking back at the images, uh, they they look more Turkish. They they're they're more non Caucasian. Right. Right. Well, and and with with the hats and and the the hairstyles, I'm I'm guessing a little bit more yeah. of of the sort of Turkish Asian ish. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, national national boundaries were weird back then, but uh, but suffice yeah. to say, I, I don't think we're I don't think we're meant to take that Dracula sent them to fight Kane. Yeah. Now the wolves, and... he might have, but but not them. Possibly, uh, but. Yeah, I, I just really enjoyed the story. I, I just really enjoyed it. Yeah, of course we, we get more of that uh, that uh, suggested nudity that this magazine is famous for. Yep. Um, in, in the uh, the uh, seduction scene that no story could be without. No, this is the second seduction scene we've had uh, in this issue. Yeah, and in this case, it's interesting in that it kind of echoes um, the vampire bride's attempting to seduce Jonathan Harker in the novel. That actually does seem like a connection to the novel that that Roy is making. Yes. Which, good for Roy. <laughs> bringing things back to the novel. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, I love... As with the previous story, the fight scene at the end is really fun. I, I love the duel between uh, Kane and, uh, and Dracula. Yes. I-, I love any adventure that ends with a sword fight see again captain Cronus. yeah yeah but especially just when kane shows up furious and he goes into the room and dracula has that smug look on his face and is just calmly drinking a glass of wine so solomon kane you've learned my little secret then <laughs> so good like you uh, son and then of just a the bitch layout, the it's <laughs> um like the the next it's, it's... page uh, page, it's, uh, I think page 42 of the magazine, um, where you've got, like, all of the sort of inset panels that are showing bits of the fight scene as it progresses. Yes. Um, like, it, I mean, it, it's a little bit of a cheat because it, it it gets them out of having to put backgrounds. Like, it's all very abstract. But it puts the focus on the swordplay, which is really nice. You can feel the, the swords clash. Mm-hmm. Like, the little, the immediate see these panels, you're like, clack, 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 clack. I can't do sword fight sounds. <laughs> but, like, you you can feel the clash of these two blades in these little tiny panels. Yeah, and it's it accomplished, like it, it's accomplished without sound effects. There's no onomatopoeia on the yeah, page. It's, yeah, it, it's, it's like the size of the tininess of the panels makes it so much more da- dynamic. And it's really right. weird the way they did that. And, and it the only makes, thing that could it, it, it conveys the speed of the movement because each image is an impact. Each image is when the swords are clashing. There's not a there's none of the in between movement. 
No. The only thing that might make it better is if instead of like a little granular background that we have here, maybe have the fireplace again mm -hmm. as the background and just all those panels laid on top of it. Yeah. But, hell, I didn't think of that until just now. So obviously it did not distract from the story. Right. Now, the one thing that threw me off a little bit is that Kane's sword at the beginning of the story is a silver alloy and thus would have hurt Dracula. Um, but that sword is very clearly broken at the beginning of the story, so that can't be the sword he's using here. Yes. This is one he pulled off the wall. Right, right. Because, and just like the axe later, like all of these weapons are just weapons that come off of the wall of this, this room. Like, you see on page 41 where, like, Dracula's doing the swirling of the wine thing in front of the fireplace, and Solomon Kane's like, fuck this shit, I throw the sword at you. Right, right. It's very, very good. Yeah, a lot of fun. Like, uh, and again, like, you can feel just in the the action and in the dialogue and in the narration Roy Thomas's like, enjoyment of these characters. Yes. And the art's not too shabby either. No, the the, the art, the art, you know, she she gets the job done. <laughs> Absolutely. Considering uh, apparently just a ton of hands went into this book. <laughs> In terms of the inking, especially, yeah. And and with it being black and white, there's a whole lot of inking to do. Yep, yep. It just, oh, I would watch a movie of this. Yeah, it's fun. It's so fun. I think, you know, I think that that's our ultimate. Like, which one is the best story in the Dracula's issue this episode? Well, I'd watch a movie of this one. I'd like a whole movie of just this. Yeah, like... Seem, seeming... Because mm -hmm. that, that's... You basically have two kinds of stories in these anthologies. You've got the stories where it's a good thing that was a short story. And you've got the stories where, wow, I wish there was more of that. Yeah, like, I think last issue of this magazine, that story for us was the Nazis in the castle. Yeah, yeah. That was one that I, I feel like could have been expanded more. Yes. Um, but yeah, this one definitely... I mean, partly because Solomon Kane, like, just him showing up suggests this bigger story happening around what we're getting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, it's... Um, now, has this one ever been reprinted? Uh, I am not sure. Let's see, this is Castle of the Undead, right? Mm-hmm. Um... Yeah, because it feels like it should be, but I can see why it wouldn't be. Hold on, I found a link to reprints. Let's see. Oh, um, fun fact. Yeah? While you're looking for that, uh, Solomon Kane is also a setting produced for Savage Worlds. Oh, that makes sense. Yes. Uh, it's one of the earlier settings they did. It's actually uh, expiring at the end of the year. So... Um, they're having a huge sale right now for all of their Solomon Kane books. Nice. Because they're like, hey, um, get the, we want you to get these books while you still can. So for 100 bucks, you get all of our Solomon Kane books. Huh. Um, so, weirdly, I don't know if it's ever been reprinted in like a, a trade paperback or an omnibus or anything. Um, but, weirdly, in the late 80s, Marvel had a magazine called Conan Saga, which looks like it was mostly reprints of Conan adaptations. Um, but in issue number 31, published in 1989, 
they reprinted Castle of the Undead. Oh, nice. So it at least exists in one other magazine issue. Because, like, yeah, I'm wondering, is their new Conan contract, does that include Solomon Cain? I don't know. So are we going to see Solomon Cain showing up in Savage Avengers, or...? I would not be mad to see Solomon Kane run into, I don't know, um, a member of the Bloodstone family. Ooh. Like Jasper Bloodstone, Ulysses' his great-grandfather. <laughs> um, but yeah, so again, probably my favorite story. Sounds like it's your favorite story of the issue, too. Um, yeah, definitely. It, it, it's fun, it's exciting, it's engaging, it captures sort of the intellect of Dracula in a way that is sometimes missing. Um, yes. So, yeah, I, I'd say, it's, like, if you're going to read one... good stuff. If you're going to read one story out of this, this issue, this is the one to look at. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And, interestingly enough, uh, you have, on the next page after the story's ended, a advert for Satana. Yeah. The Devil's Sh- Daughter. Showing up in Vampire Tales. So, we're going to be reading that soon. Yep, that goes... That was on sale July 3rd, according to this advertisement. Yep, so even though this book is cover dated October, um, it's coming out in the summer months, which is just how cover dates work, guys, in case you did not know. Right. But but yeah, I mean, interesting that that you're going to use a uh, a Morbius mag to uh, introduce the Devil's Daughter. If it means we get more interesting stories... Besides just the Morbius story in Devils in Vampire Tales, I'm happy for it. Yeah, I'll take man, it. Man, some of those were snoozers. So yeah, um, and an ad for Satana, who we will be seeing soon in in Vampire Tales. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and of course her uh, her brother uh, is uh, in uh, um, Marvel premiere. Uh, oh yeah, her brother. I forgot about him. Yeah. In, in that uh, ongoing three-part story that spun out of Ghost Rider. Oh, yeah. that, that We'll be getting back to that eventually. But first, we have one more Dracula story tonight. Yeah, um, which we haven't, ta- we haven't talked about the text pieces, but uh, before the Solomon Kane story, there was a nice little um, retrospective on the career of Bela Lugosi. Yep. And his relationship to the Dracula role, which is nice. Um, interesting, though, not a single mention of Ed Wood in it. No, which... Ed Wood is a very controversial figure for Bela Lugosi fans. <laughs> uh, because there are a lot of Bela Lugosi, um, I guess you call them stands, who feel that Ed Wood was an extortionist. Or an extortion right. artist, a con man who exploited Bella in his later years. Right, right. Which um, other people disagree with, especially people like Tim Burton, who had a very different portrait of Ed Wood in his movie, Ed Wood. Right, right. And the relationship between Ed Wood and Bella Lugosi. Right, but, and, and that that version of Bella Lugosi in the movie is a little bit romanticized anyway. Um, by most accounts, he and Karloff were actually at least on decent terms, if not outright friends. Yes. It, it, um, from what I understand, while he was bitter about his lack of roles, 
I don't think he blamed Boris Karloff. Right. That I, I would expect probably any resentment was to the studio that kept like blatantly ignoring his existence. Although he did hate Lon Chaney Jr. That seems to be pretty common, actually. Yeah. I think everybody who ever met Lon Chaney Jr. hated Lon Chaney Jr. I think everybody who ever watched Lon Chaney Jr. on a screen watched hated Lon Chaney Jr. <sighs> Talk about yeah. a guy whose yeah, you... only talent was his name. That's not entirely fair. I actually do think he turned in a handful of very good performances. Um, he was a fairly limited actor. Um, he didn't have a lot of range. But I don't think he was a bad actor. He just had a lot of bad habits. Yes, very bad habits, which... Um, like, uh, for example, um, if you ever get a chance, there is a, uh, an adaptation of Frankenstein that he was in. Um, it was done for television. It was broadcast live, in fact. Um, and he played the monster, I believe. Um, and he showed up to the set so drunk that he thought it was the dress rehearsal. And so as he went through the scenes, uh, supposed to be smashing the set, like smashing, like, the beakers and test tubes and stuff, instead he would just, like, sort of gently set them aside so that he didn't, so they didn't have to be reset for later because he thought it was a dress rehearsal. Dear God. And that was towards the end of his career when things were especially bad. Yeah. And, and, and... From what I have read, he very likely suffered from, at the very least, depression, um, and was doing a lot of self-medicating. Yes. Um, which, that is, that's not good. Uh, that's, I mean, mental health is, is nothing to make light of, but, um, but the way that he medicated himself tended to manifest in, in bad ways for the people around him. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, back... long story short, there there is a retrospective of Bela Lugosi that that's it's it's interesting. It, it's not you know like the the most well researched article, but it's fine. And then after the Solomon Kane story, we've got a uh, a prose piece by Chris Claremont, um, which is written from the point of view of Abraham Van Helsing. Nice, um, and that is also worth reading. Um, as it's this kind of reflection on uh, Van Helsing and almost sort of an origin story for Van Helsing, which is kind of cool. Um, but my favorite part of it is actually the, the closing lines, which, which give the article its title. And uh, it, it ends with this. An eye for an eye, Dracula. A life for a life. Yours for Elizabeth's. It will not end until one of us is dead. His line extinct forever. This I swear, by the god of my fathers, by the soul of my dead wife, I am Van Helsing. Remember me, Dracula, and fear my coming. And may God forgive me, for I was once a gentle man. So good. So good. I, I want that comic. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. That sort of takes us to um, the last original story in uh in this issue um we've been skipping over the reprints because frankly they are pretty bad um i don't know if you read them james but they are bad no i i i, I skipped over them although i kind of like the art on the one with the knight and the skull in the armor but 
That's yeah, just I me. mean, the, the they're like the first one. I think is like a weird sort of quasi vampire story about a hunchback who turns out to be Jack the Ripper or some such. Uh, it's not great. Like the twist is is pretty uh, predictable, uh, and uh, I honestly don't even remember the other one. It, um, it, all I know is it had a skeleton and armor, which you know I like that sort <laughs> of thing. But sure, yeah. Uh, the last one. Oh yeah, no, it, it's the the it's the it's the adaptation of Macbeth, um, fire Fireburn and Cauldron Bubble. Um, it's a weird retelling of Macbeth, focused on the witches, but then they change the ending. Like, how are you gonna adapt Shakespeare and change the ending? Oh, okay. That's why I got a Shakespearean vibe from it. Yeah, 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 yeah. But instead of like the twist being that uh that Macduff uh was not born uh was not of woman born or whatever that that he was uh uh born through c through c section um that twist is replaced with a twist that um he was he, he he's actually the child of one of the witches one of the weird sisters and he's a zombie which what Sorry, the I, I suppose... like, early modern Renaissance drama scholar in me is ripping hair out right now because it is confused. Yeah, I, I kind of figure you'd have a problem with that. It's it's weird. But it also doesn't star Dracula, so we're not going to talk about it anymore. No. Nope. Um, instead, instead, we are going to go to our third and final story of this issue, Shadow in the City of Light, written by Jerry Conway penciled and inked by Alfonso Font. In Paris, a ship arrives from New Orleans and unloads an unusual cargo, a single coffin. Later that evening, after the workers have left, a woman arrives with hammer and stake in hand, with the goal of destroying Dracula. But the sun sets, and she is too late. The vampire emerges from his coffin and demands that she explain how she knew where he would be and what her quarrel is with him. Under his hypnotic spell, she reveals that she is Helene Dubois, and that her cousin in New Orleans heard rumor of Dracula's travels, and that friends in the shipping office told her when the ship would arrive. But before Helene can explain why she attacked Dracula, she passes out from struggling against his hypnosis. Still, rather than feed on her, Dracula leaves her alive to better suit his purposes. Elsewhere, at Notre-Dame-de-Paris, a policeman is confronted by a grotesque monster, unaffected by gunfire. Meanwhile, Dracula has found a victim and fed, but the screams of his prey revive Helene, who grabs a nearby chair leg and once again attempts to kill Dracula. He stops her yet again, and with more hypnosis takes her to a nearby cafe to learn her secrets. Helene's great-grandfather was Jacques Dubois who fought against Dracula alongside Cagliostro. Back at the cathedral, the grotesque monster finally speaks, quote, He is here, and I must destroy him. Then, perhaps, I may be free. Having left the cafe, Dracula remembers the details of Helene's great-great-grandfather, a stonecutter, and, in the vampire's words, a madman. He remembers a time long ago when he was attacked by a stone monster sent by Dubois and Cagliostro. He traced the monster back to Dubois, 
who had used a mystic fluid from Cagliostro to, to create the monster. Dracula attacked and threw Dubois into the vat of liquid, leaving him for dead. Back in the present, the grotesque monster reveals himself as Jacques Dubois, preserved through the years as a creature of stone, only animate at night. Dubois' obsession with killing Dracula is due to Cagliostro promising that the vampire's death would free Dubois from his curse. Dracula leads him on a chase through the skies of Paris, ending with Dubois crashing through the Eiffel Tower and shattering on the street below. Having defeated his foe, Dracula leaves Helene to mourn her great-grandfather. So, is this where they got the idea for the Disney show Gargoyles? I was thinking the exact same thing. Because he's a gargoyle who comes awake at night to fight evil. Yep. 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 It, 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 it sounds like gargoyles. <laughs> and he lives on top of a big castle structure. Yep. In Paris. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. No, I, I, yep. I mean, it, it is pretty similar to the premise of the uh, Disney animated series. Yep. Um, also, this is easily my least favorite story of the issue. You know, I would agree with that, except for, I kind of like the art. The art's good, and I like the design of the gargoyle monster. Um, I, I, I like the design of, uh, Helene. Mm-hmm. Although, the Dracula looks a little weird. He looks more like movie Dracula. No, he's Vincent Price Dracula. Yeah, yeah, he is. He is. Look at those sideburns. Yeah, are those sideburns or shadows? Shadows. But like, no, they're sideburns. He's got he's got Vincent Price sideburns. Okay. Yeah. But his hairline, his eyebrows, his eyes, his very shape of his face—that's all Vincent Price. Yep. Yep. In particular, mid seventies Vincent Price. Yeah, which, uh, uh, okay, sure. It's not a bad look. It doesn't fit the rest of what we've seen of Marvel's Dracula, though. This one feels like, even though it ties in directly with the previous story where he was in uh, New Orleans, um, it feels the most out of continuity visually. Uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, he's Look, he's even got the side, like, the little weird, like, graying temples... Mm-hmm. that price had it, yep it's just i don't know it's like no one gave him the style guide for dracula right and, and the and his outfit is ba- is what made me say movie dracula yeah although he's not christopher lee either because he's got a mustache no 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 um but yeah it's like if if hammer had made a dracula movie and couldn't get christopher lee but they were able to get vincent price this is what you would get. No, this is like if Roger Corman decided to make a a, <laughs> um, a Dracula film set in Paris. Dracula versus the Gargoyle. In between Poe adaptations. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so weirdness of Dracula's appearance aside, I agree, the art's pretty good. Um, yes. The uh, <laughs> I can't help but chuckle a little bit at the hypnosis effect, where there's like the image of a bat in her eye. Uh, before Batman would do it, where that became a, a go-to Batman thing. Mm-hmm. Because, like, they did that earlier with somebody 
in hypnosis and we we mentioned it then too um i do that was yeah was that the 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 nazi issue yes it was yeah Uh, although in that one it wasn't like the little cart because that okay the bat in her eye is adorable it's a it's a pretty cute little bat. It's a cute little bat. It isn't like the, you know the Batman sick the bat sin- signal which we saw in previous issues. Um, it it is worth noting that on um, page sixty nine they get past the nudity ban by um, yep having a naked statue. Yep. But it's a draw. There are both drawings, so how can you tell, etc. Right. Um, I'm really glad Helene did not die. Right. Although it's kind of weird that she didn't, to be honest. Yeah, I'm not really sure how she doesn't die, but hey, we will um, we'll we'll excuse it. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess the the idea is that from the beginning he never sees her as a threat. Yeah, like not once does he ever seem threatened by her, even when she is brandishing a wooden stake. Which is a little bit insulting. It is. Um. Of course, he also doesn't seem particularly threatened by the gargoyle either. Yeah. Anyway, it, it's 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 a perfectly good story. I don't hate yeah. it. It's, it's just not, not bad. The strongest in this issue. Yeah. It, it it is not like there is never a moment in this issue, in this story rather, that's as good as that page of Dracula and Solomon Kane sword fighting. No, that that that's just amazing. It, it, it it's it's so good uh, I, I want more of that I want more I want more swashbuckling vampire fighting action god damn it yeah me too um, there's also uh, just after the story there's like a little puff piece about Stan Lee oh yeah I saw that Marvel's heroes yeah yeah you know we, we love Stan yeah um, but, I mean, let's call it what it is, at the time when he was running the company, it's a puff piece. Yeah, it's like, it's if we wrote a piece about how great, you know, Mr. Gravely was, Mr. Gravely is. Right, right. Let, let's not give him any ideas. I don't know, especially with Cinnaween coming up. Yep, yep. Um, coming to, soon to the Cinepunks website. Shh. <laughs> um... We do get a short preview of the next issue, um, which I don't know how good this is going to be, but I like the sound of this first story listed, Dracula versus Dracula in the haunted backlots of Hollywood. Yeah, that one sounds like it's going to be a fun one. Yep. Uh, and of course, as we mentioned earlier, um, the beginning of the uh, Roy Thomas, John Buscema, uh Bram Stoker adaptation. Yep. And uh, something called the Countess of Blood, um, which I'm wondering if that might be some sort of adaptation of the Elizabeth Bathory story. Probably. The the lady who bathed in virgin's blood. Right. And often gets sort of shorthanded as sort of the female equivalent of Dracula. Yeah. Um, so, Uh, So. I think we've said all we have to say about this big old magazine. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot here, um, but, but I mean, we didn't have a single bad story. Um, we had one really standout, and then a couple that are just fun, that are okay. Yeah, they do the job. Exactly. And for a, ma- a magazine this size, 
that's a pretty good batting average. Indeed it is. So, we'll be right back with Amazing Spider-Man, Volume 1, 125, right after these messages. Your blood is their life. Your nightmare is the evil only one man can stop. Captain Cronus, Vampire Hunter. Death in every doorway. Trembling in every heart. Who lives to destroy the curse? Her youth will pulse through your veins, my darling. Who duels to battle the undead? Yes, you bleed, my lord. to bleed the bloodthirsty. At last, horror has met its match. Captain Cronus, Vampire Hunter, rated R. It's energized Spider-Man, battery not included. Attach the spider clamp, flip the switch, and the motorized web climber starts him climbing, keeps him climbing. Energized Spider-Man, the spider web trap for lifting and pulling. The spider light. You can watch him climb in the dark and pretend he's searching for the enemy. The power pack turns on the spider copter. Sold separately. Spider-Man flies by night. Energized Spider-Man comes with motorized web climber. Spider copter sold separately by Remco. Welcome back to Move Ideas. Our last issue for the evening is Amazing Spider-Man Volume 1, Issue 125. Cover date on this one is October 1973. The title is... Wolf Hunt. Writer is Jerry Conway. Penciler is Ross Andrew. Inkers are John Romita Sr. and Tony Mortolero. Colorist is David Hunt. Letterer is Artie Simic. Editor is Roy Thomas. Picking up from last issue, Spider-Man is ambushed by the Man-Wolf. Spidey barely survives the encounter, partially because he wonders if it's worth fighting on through life after the death of Queen Stacy. Speaking of subplots, we check in with Mary Jane, Flash Thompson, Randy Rant Robertson, and Harry Osborne. Harry seems especially cheesed off of Mary Jane for reasons unknown to her, but which Harry claims are because of her newfound pre preference for Peter over himself. Liar! 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 Meanwhile, also in the supporting cast, Jonah lets himself into his astronaut son John Jameson's apartment and finds his son in the same green and yellow one-piece worn by the man-wolf the night before. John recounts for his father the tale of how he found the strange amulet on a top-secret moonshot and how it has now grafted itself to his skin. Spider-Man tries to figure out the man-wolf's identity with the help of Robbie Robertson, but is chased away by Jonah and some police officers wielding tear gas. That night, Jonah is at John's apartment to confront his son, who is once more changed to the man-wolf. This is also happening at a, at a time Christine is on her way for a date with John. While Peter Parker finally connects all the things he saw about the Man-Wolf and correctly deduces that he's John Jameson, Spider-Man arrives just as Man-Wolf is about to attack her and rips the necklace off the creature's body, causing the creature to change back to John Jameson. When Jonah comes out to check on his son, Spider-Man tells him to take John to a hospital. When Jameson fears the publicity, Spider-Man tells him he has to take responsibility because his son could have hurt or killed someone. Spider-Man then throws the necklace as far away as possible, the nearby river, and walks off. When Jameson tries to thank Spider-Man, 
the wall crawler tells him to save it for the papers. So, as far as sort of two-part story arcs like this go, it's a pretty good conclusion. It, it, it's a little bit limp, honestly. I mean, it, it... I... The... How quickly he figures out the solution and then implements it uh, is a little bit of a disappointment. Yeah. It's all like, oh, is this the problem? Yank! Big, big right. chunk of flesh and um, fur. Go, go, spidey strength. <laughs> yeah, although really, no reason they couldn't have done that with, like, a skilled surgeon. Right. Like... Except that, except that J.J. was afraid of hospitals. Although, really, John Jameson should have thought of this months ago. Considering he went to the trouble of developing a radiation suit to try and block the lunar rays. Right. He did not design that by himself. I'm sure right. he can find some surgeon willing to very discreetly remove a space rock from his chest. Also, I can't help but wonder why, if you're going to go to all the trouble of like trying to block the lunar rays, why are you going to make it a V-neck? instead of actually covering up the space rock that is absorbing the lunar rays. This is true. Maybe the space rock was influencing his thinking even in human form? That's possible. Because it, it makes him steal it. Yeah, like he is compelled to take it from the moment he finds it. Yes. So that makes total sense, actually. Uh, yeah, yeah, like subconsciously, even as he is trying to stop himself from being the man-wolf, he is being influenced to become the man-wolf. Right, and that might be why he didn't think, hey, I should just go see a surgeon. Yep. Like, he's rationalizing, um, the, oh, I'm trying to stop it, I made this radiation suit. This completely ineffectual radiation suit. Yep. Um, one thing that, that is unfortunate about this issue is, in terms of action, in terms of especially Spidey-on-Wolf action... Um, it doesn't really compare favorably to Spider-Man's fight with the Werewolf by Night. No. It, it, th that one, it definitely more dynamic. Honestly, the stuff with the Werewolf before Spider-Man shows up is more, far more dynamic than when Spider-Man shows up. And it's kind of like, oh, is this the only problem? Again, yank. Right. Yeah, no, it's just it seems like a very quick solution, which is unfortunate. I would have liked more interaction between the two. It, it's it basically, while Jameson is trying to figure out what's going on with Son, Spider-Man is trying to figure out, figure out his own subplots. Where we, it's where we get the thing with Harry and Mary Jane. And is this past the point where Harry has figured out that Spider-Man is Peter Parker, or Peter Parker is Spider-Man? I don't know. I don't think so. But I could be wrong. It's been a long time since I read this era of Spider-Man. Yeah, partly because I just, it's not my favorite era. Like, Peter wandering around feeling sorry for himself after the death of Gwen Stacy is just not my favorite mood for a Spider-Man story. No. Like, right here, uh, in the aftermath of Gwen Stacy's death, where Peter's just kind of moping around and there's a lot of self-pity going on and everyone's being awful to Mary Jane. Like, it, it's just, it's not my favorite. Yeah. It's, it's just, eh. Even, even the ending where, where Spidey is, I mean, justifiably short and, and 
rude to Jameson. But still, it's it's not a great tone to end a comic on. No. It's it's supposed to be a tragic ending. Yeah. It's also just a weird juxtaposition of this, like, angsty, emotional, angry ending. And then at the very bottom of the final panel, next issue, where stalks the kangaroo. Oh, god damn it. <laughs> it's... It's it's a inauspicious debut for Man Wolf, a character I think we're gonna have a lot of fun with on this show. Yeah, no, this is not the most auspicious beginning. Um, but he's gonna get that gem back, and when he does, I think things are gonna pick up a little bit. Although I would still love to see Man Wolf as the villain in a Spider Man film. Oh yeah. No, that's I mean, supposedly they're gonna tie Morbius into Spider Man now. Fuck that. Bring back the MCU. I, 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 I'm really done with this crap. Yeah. That is all I'm going to say about that. Yeah. But. <sighs> anyway. But you're right. Manwolf Man Wolf is a cool character. His connection to Jameson makes him especially interesting in terms of storytelling. Right. That's not 100% reflected here. But there, there are hints at possibilities. Yeah, most people, when they mentioned that Jameson's son is an astronaut. They seem to just want it as a way to bring the Venom symbiont into the story without having to go through the trouble right. of going to Secret Wars. Right, because astronaut. Yeah, astronaut. Um, but he he's really interesting I think for Manwolf. In fact, even in this form, he later dates She-Hulk, which is hilarious. Yeah. And of course we, we will eventually get to some like weird cosmic sword and sorcery kind of stuff yep cosmic sword and sorcery which god bless it yep i love it so much anyway it's but but this issue is is it's okay we're just not there yet yeah it's i mean man wolf has potential but this is this is not even the best spider-man issue that we've covered on this podcast no and we're not a Spider-Man show. No, we're not. Although, God knows I love Spider-Man. <laughs> but yeah, it's fine. Yeah, it's okay. It's looking forward to more from the character, but uh, but this one just seems a little too a little too easy. Yeah. Anyway, so I, I think that sort of wraps it up for our two issues. It does. Today. And speaking of easy, Trey, why don't you tell the kind folks how we can how they can get in touch with us? Absolutely. You can always email us your feedback, questions, or comments to tombofideas at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at tombofideas. And you can also find us, uh, find episodes of our show wherever you get your podcasts. That's iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, um, wherever you go. Please rate us, like us, review us, subscribe. Um, all of that stuff helps get other people to see our show. Um, and you can also find us as sort of our home base at cinepunks.com, um, along with a lot of other great podcasts, such as Horror Business, um, the flagship Cinepunks show, um, Wine and Cheese, um, and many others. True. Um, and actually, and actually uh, as we are headed toward the month of October, one thing to be on the lookout for is uh, there is going to be a special Cineween event on Cinepunks 
where every day there is going to be brand new horror and genre and Halloween content. Um, and you know uh, us at, at Tomb of Ideas, we are all about that spooky Halloween content. Right. So, again, feel free to reach out to us, just like our lovely listener Paul M. Dickey did. Uh, you may remember him as the guy who did that really great Man-Thing digital painting for us. He has sent us another one, which I'll go ahead and include as the cover image for this episode, where he takes his paintbrush, his digital paintbrush, to the Lord of the Vampires, Dracula. And again, onto that Cinepunks content. Guys, it is really great stuff. I know I'm catching up on it right now. I just listened to a great episode of Horror Business where they talk about um, a personal favorite of mine, the really cheesy werewolf classic, The Beast Must Die. And Yeah, that, that's a fun yeah, one. They, they kind of rip it a new one, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's fair. But yes, yeah, so by all means, follow us. Check out some of the other great Cinepunk shows and uh, and take a look at some of the, the written material on the site because there's a lot of good stuff there, especially as we head into October and the Cineween celebration. Right. You never know. You may see some familiar names in those bylines. Wink. Wink. Yep. <laughs> anyway, I think that does it for this episode. Um, coming up next time... Um, we have another uh, two-issue episode um, where we are going to be looking at uh, Ghost Rider number two and concluding the uh, Son of Satan uh, trilogy, such that it is Marvel Spotlight number 12. That's right. We're going to figure out what's going on with that... Uh, um, what's his name? I, I don't remember what happened in the last issue. I don't remember the character's name. Hellstrom! Hellstrom! David Hellstrom! There we go. Yeah, yeah, David yeah. David Hellstrom. I, I thought you meant any one of the other characters <laughs> that has been there for several issues for some unknown Bite reason. Bite your tongue, sir. Like, Snake Dance is still in this How store. could I forget... Hey, man, that's not fair at all. I mean, how could I forget Slade? <laughs> <laughs> Didn't he die? I don't even remember anymore. No, I can't remember. <laughs> Anyway, we 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 are the worst. We are the worst podcasters ever. We're gonna catch up on Ghost Rider number one so that we can cover Ghost Rider two and Marvel Spotlight number twelve. You might want to do the same. Until next time, listeners. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel horror podcast. Until next time, Tombers Excelsior! <laughs>